This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. I was lying on my bed with my dog, Daisy, watching it on my phone. And when they announced my name, I couldn't believe it. And really, I almost fell off the bed. (laughs) It was really, it was a hysterical moment. (laughs) That's Simona Dinnerstein describing what happened when she learned her recording American Mosaic received a recent Grammy nomination for Best Classical Instrumental Solo Recording. It's one of two recordings that she put out last year, and now she's released the third in this trilogy of recordings that have been inspired by the pandemic. This one is called Undersong, and it's featured this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mucker. Simona, I'm so thrilled to talk to you um, about your latest recording. Before we dive into that, I want to talk about some of the cool performances and projects you've been doing because there's been a whole list of them. And one is uh, the world premiere of The Eye is the First Circle at Montclair State University. It's the first multimedia production that you've conceived, created, directed, and you've used um, your father's painting. Um, the Fulbright Triptych and Charles Ives's Piano Sonata Number no. 2 as part of this production. And we talked a little bit about this last time that you were kind of putting it together. Now, has this premiere occurred? Is this something you just did or is it still uh, just on the horizon? Uh, it happened last October, actually, and it was uh, incredibly exciting. Really one of the most exciting things I think I've ever done. It was actually I would say the most creative project I've ever been a part of and very, very personal because the triptych that my father painted, which is a a monumental work, it's a 14 feet wide painting, three panel painting, depicts my family, uh, my mother, my father, and me as a baby. And he did it when when I was a baby. And the painting is really about my parents and the world and values that they had at that time. And so looking at the painting and delving into it is really a way of, for me, of looking at where I come from and how I became the person that I am today. And so the, the, the piece that I made, The Eyes of the First Circle, uses that and Ives's Concord Sonata, which is Ives's tribute to the great transcendentalist writers. And um, it's very hard to describe. It's almost like a devised theater piece. There's a set. I worked with the fabulous uh, video artist, Laurie Ollander, and we worked on what images and what kinds of themes we were going to explore and fabulous lighting designer. It was just, it's really, really exciting. So I'm hoping that I will be touring it um, coming up. Oh, that would be wonderful. Do you have any idea where you might tour it? There are a few places that are really interested in it. Um, It's quite a challenging thing to do because you need a proper theater to do it. 
and a theater with a fly space because uh, we have sets that fly up into that area. Um, each is in four movements and each movement has a different look. And uh, the final movement has this giant scrim that goes across the entire stage and I'm like behind it. So I'm kind of submerged into the environment that we're depicting. So it's really a kind of immersive show, but it's not theater. It's not a concert. It's not an opera. It's kind of inhabiting many different worlds. Wonderful. I'm glad that that became such a wonderful experience for you. And you've had so many during COVID, um, which has really been pretty remarkable. It's almost like you have sort of found a whole new creative level for yourself at this time. Yeah, it's actually really, really interesting thinking back to this period because uh, in the first few months, when when we first spoke, actually, I think we spoke the summer or early fall of 2020. And at that time, I felt really like I hadn't done anything. But now looking back on it from the spring of 2020 to now, has been really one of my most productive periods ever. And um, all really, really interesting projects and, and projects where I have real control, where it's been, it's been my own voice leading what I wanted to do. And I think that, I think a lot of people during this period of time uh, of, this, of the pandemic have found a, a stronger connection to their inner selves and to what they, what they desire to do with their lives. And uh, that has really been my experience. And that of course is what your latest recording is really about, which I want to dive into first. However, I want to congratulate you on your Grammy nomination for an American mosaic. Thank you. Which is the second recording in this trilogy of recordings that you've created. How did that feel to receive that nomination? Oh, it was so exciting. It was completely unexpected. And uh, it was a very funny afternoon because I have never watched the nomination process. Um, But I remembered that it was the day that the nominations were announced. So I went to look online to see who had been nominated. And it turned out they were streaming the, the nomination right then. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll watch. I've never watched this. I haven't, I, I wonder what it's like. And I tuned in and it was right before they announced the classical nominations. And so I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just watch this. And I was lying on my bed with my dog, Daisy, watching it on my phone. And when they announced my name, I, I couldn't believe it. And really, I almost fell off the bed. <laughs> It was really, it was a hysterical moment. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. That's really funny. Well, one of your other premieres has been Richard Daniel Poor's An American Mosaic and performing it on multiple pianos placed throughout Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. Has that already occurred as well? Yes, that happened in September. And that was one of the most beautiful and unusual concert experiences I've ever had. Uh, Greenwood Cemetery is a fabulously beautiful and historic cemetery near where I live. It's huge. And um, I spent a lot of time walking around that cemetery during this period. And 
they have a concert series in the catacombs that's called Death of Classical. And so I spoke with Andrew Owsley, who runs that series, and he, he wanted to present me in the series, which was great. But I said, you know, instead of just staying in the catacombs, I think it would be really interesting if we could have a walk. Um, so it would almost be like, like, you know, those, um, I always forget the, the name of it, when you have dinners where you go from one person's house to another and you have like one course in one person's house. Have you ever done one of those? I have, but it's been a long time, like a progressive dinner. A progressive dinner, yeah. yeah. So I wanted a progressive concert and I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of trace a walk that I would have taken during this period. And uh, he thought that was a great idea. And luckily Yamaha thought it was a good idea too. And so we had um, four pianos in different locations and the concert was at night, so it was dark. And I had a lantern and I would lead the audience from piano to piano. We divided the concert up between the different locations. And I think we walked a total of two miles. Um, it was really atmospheric and and perfectly appropriate for an American mosaic. Did the audience, I'm imagining them like carrying candles or something. How did they find their way along with you throughout the cemetery? It was slightly dangerous. <laughs> uh, people had phones. Some people brought flashlights. There were lots of mosquitoes. Uh, we saw a skunk. Um, there were raccoons. And uh, actually one night, we did it three nights, one night, some bug, I don't know what it was, crawled up my skirt while I was playing and um, stayed there for quite a while. <laughs> um, so that's the first time that's ever happened to me. Um, but it was, everybody felt really, really moved. And just, you know, cause part of the cemetery where we started you see this spectacular view of Manhattan. Um, Greenwood Cemetery is, I believe, the highest point in New York City. So you had a, have a whole view of the lower Manhattan skyline and um, listening to music and watching that is pretty magical. When you and I spoke about a year ago, you commented on how unusual it was for you to release two recordings in a year, and now you're releasing another, which is part of, I guess, a trilogy of recordings that you've made during this COVID period. This new one is called Undersong. And let's start with the title itself. Where does the title come from? Undersong is a beautiful word that I discovered. I was, I was kind of looking around for words that would um, speak to the idea of a refrain because every piece of music on this album has a refrain in it. Um, it, it, it has an almost rondo form. So you have this returning theme idea. And I found the word undersong, which is an archaic word for a song with a refrain. And I also thought that undersong has also been used as the underlying theme, the underlying uh, thread that holds together our world. And um, 
I thought that it was beautiful to have both of those meanings in the title because I think that's why composers and why people are drawn to refrains is because it connects us to something quite deep. We, we like to return, we like to go home, we like to revisit and, and all of this music is doing that. It's also music that we can get lost in. Why is that important? Well, I think that this period that we've gone through is a period where it is hard to find your way. And the future is spectacularly unknown. You know, like, of course the future is always unknown, but it, it has really brought home to us the fact that we really couldn't predict what was going to happen day by day. I mean, even now, we can't predict what's going to happen. And so this feeling of kind of a lack of sense of time, um, a feeling of, of no particular beginning or end, um, of losing oneself, is something that is happening in this music as well. Poetry inspires you, and it seems to have done so once again. You include a poem by Emerson in the liner notes, and I think it's called The Undersong. It is, yes. Do you have it in front of you? Could you share it with us? To the open air it sings, sweet the genesis of things, of tendency through endless ages, of stardust and star pilgrimages of rounded worlds, of space and time, of the old floods, subsiding slime, of chemic matter, force and form, of poles and powers, cold, wet and warm, the rushing metamorphosis dissolving all that fixture is, melts things that be to things that seem, and solid nature to a dream. Now this is what he said, the undersong meant to him. What do you read in this poem that resonates with you? I like the feeling that um, that there's this kind of rushing force underneath everything. That is larger than what we can even imagine. And I guess I feel that poetry and music often speaks to these forces and it's hard for us to be in touch with that in our normal lives. And, and art gets us to that point. I think that for Emerson, he also was very, very connected to nature. And so nature was another route to that awareness. And on the album, because I had been spending a lot of time walking around Greenwood, which is full of nature, the most beautiful trees and birds, and I had been thinking about this music that I recorded on the album, it kind of all tied together. And also the word undersong, you know, spending time in a cemetery, you also think about, you think about that word in a different way too. So, um, I had I used a photograph of myself in Greenwood Cemetery as the cover of the album and 
put this poem inside and it, it just was a nice kind of poetic circle, I guess. I know that when you put a recording together or a concert program, it's all very intentional. I have to say, though, it's remarkable how beautifully each one of the pieces on this recording from different periods flow together. Can you talk more about that? Thank you. Well, I, I think a lot about how um, pieces of music from different time periods can speak to each other. And this particular program is one that I conceived of actually a few years ago. I was touring it before the pandemic started. And it has Couperin and Schumann and Glass and Satie on it. And I spent a long time thinking about pieces of music that would flow naturally from one to the other. And that involves a number of things, like, of course, the mood, but also the form, the form being a kind of rondo form, which is like a, a, a refrain form. Um, and then also the harmonic keys and how they how they relate to each other too is important. And um, when I perform the program, I do it without any pause between the pieces. So you really feel the flow and it's not always incredibly obvious where one piece ends and one begins. Like one part that I find particularly striking is I have, I play Schumann's Arabesque and then after that, go into Philip Glass's Mad Rush. The end of Schumann's Arabesque has a, an epilogue, which is so strikingly modern. It, and it's kind of separated from the rest of the piece. And Schumann had that ability to kind of, it almost it sounds like he steps out of himself. that also at the end of Kinderzainen with the poet speaks that final movement which is like almost like Schumann being Schumann Schumann's the poet and he steps out of himself and is looking at the work that he just made um, and in this arabesque that final epilogue is almost like Schumann stepping out of time and writing something that we could hear composed today that that flows into Mad Rush feels like it could have been the same person who composed both of those pieces. was listening to it on a literally on a boom box a cd <laughs> and i turned and i went 
what piece are we into now? Because literally I, I could not, I was like, oh, I think this is a different piece. Yeah. So you are absolutely <laughs> right. Um, flowed so beautifully. I was noting that the pieces you chose by Schumann, the arabesque, and then later the uh, fantasy of pieces, Kreutzleriana, both were written at a time when he and Clara were trying to get her father's approval so that they could be married. And it was a, a very stressful time. And I'm wondering, um, is that significant in some way as to why you chose these pieces for this project? No, that's an interesting question. Um, I did not think of that when I chose those pieces, but they are pieces that are full of conflict, um, especially Chrysleriana. such split feelings of, of happiness and sadness and passion and despair. It just seems to flip on a dime. Suddenly you're in another state of mind, another another way of feeling. And I'm sure that that was a reflection of how Schumann felt when he composed the piece. Though, of course, a lot of his music is like that. But this piece of music he composed in four days, which is just mind boggling. And it was written for Clara. I mean, that kind of intensity of emotion is it's kind of overwhelming. It's an overwhelming piece of music. Yeah, one of the things that I did over this period was I read um, the marriage journal of Robert and Clara Schumann, which I had tried to get my hands on years ago and, and, and it's now available to get. and. Uh, it's fascinating because they they shared this journal. They took turns writing in it, and it was for each other. I love that whole idea of sharing a journal with your husband and um, being able to write things to each other that you might not be able to say. And of course, they were always doing that in their music too. Like I think that this piece of music, Chrysleriana he was definitely saying something specific to her in the music. And I have a feeling she would have known what it was, you know? Mad Rush by Philip Glass was written in 1979 when the Dalai Lama visited North America. And when I first started listening to it, I thought, oh, that makes sense. It's very meditative. But then it's not. <laughs> sections in there 
Simona, where I'm like, how does she even know where she is, you know, playing this piece of music? <laughs> Talk about some of the challenges with playing this piece. And maybe this is true of all the pieces Philip Glass writes because he his music is so based on that minimalist, repetitive quality. But there was a section, um, I think it was closer to the end, where I was like, I would be totally lost if I was trying to play this. <laughs> um, I, I actually find it quite clear to follow the music is when I'm playing it I, I I can see it very well and and it's funny sometimes seeing videos of myself playing it because it it doesn't look like that when I'm playing it like I, I, I look at it and I'm like it does look a bit of a blur when you see a video but it doesn't feel like that when I'm playing it it's actually a piece of music that that forces you well all of his music does this but this piece in particular as a player, it forces me to be really in the present moment and to respond to the space that I'm playing the piece in, as well as the piano. Um, there's a lot of resonance in the in in the writing. There's a, he he wrote it to be played on the organ uh, at the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine, and I could imagine what that must have sounded like in that space because it's a huge cathedral in New York City, and. Very recently, I performed this piece in Carnegie Hall. And I, before I played it there, I kept imagining, what is, what is this music gonna sound like in that space? Because I think Carnegie Hall has like one of the best acoustics I've ever heard in my life, you know? And I was imagining how the music was gonna swirl in the space and the sound of that room. finally got there and played in the concert it was so just stunning how it sounded in that in that space because you can vary the colors of the sound and it has a kind of aura and he he put that in I I, I can't even get my finger on how he does that in his writing but it's something to do with the way that glass voices the harmonies um, and he'll sort of change one line slightly in a repetition and you hear all the voices shift when that happens and there's just so much texture and color in the music it's, it's really quite powerful I don't know if you can answer this or not how do you stay in the present moment when you play a piece like that? Or is it the same as when you play any piece? I guess maybe, I don't know. Well, uh, I think the key to it is that you're listening. That's the key. I can tell when I listen to other people playing if they're in the present moment or not, because I can hear if they're listening. I notice this a lot with my students. If I really make them stop, start again, listen to what they're doing, listen from coming from the inside of the piano, not from the keyboard, but listening to the whole sound, which is very hard to do. Then the way that they play completely changes because when you're in that kind of present state of mind and you're listening to music that you are making, then 
what happens is you start responding to the sounds that you just created. And it's this really quite striking kind of cycle of sound that you can find yourself in. I think listening, playing and listening at the same time is one of the hardest things to do, especially as the music becomes more and more complicated because you can be thinking too much about playing and not about listening. I think actually in general in life itself, it's very hard to listen. You know, like you can be talking to someone and you realize that they're not listening to you or somebody's talking to you and you realize you haven't really listened to them or you've been walking down the street and you've not really observed where you've been walking. You've been kind of in a dream. And so being able to really listen, look, hear, smell, use all of your senses is, I think, the goal of having a feeling of presence. The Nocian number three by Sati is a piece that where it falls within this recording, literally in the middle, it has that familiar melody in it that, at least for me, I think every time I hear it, I have to pause and go, I know that. And then I have to think about it. Is it Sati or Debussy? Oh, it's Sati. Was there an intention of including this kind of familiar melody by Sati in the middle of this recording to keep us, I don't know, to break our reverie or to keep us in it or? I thought of the Sati because I thought it would be an interesting bridge between the composers. His music is very strange and surreal and this Nocian number three was written in, I think, 1891 or 1890. It sounds very contemporary. It's, it's really ahead of its time. It's a piece of music that has no bar lines in it. And so it has a feeling of um, a meterless feeling, you know? And I liked the thought of it taking us into the Chrysleriana. And also I liked the feeling that it was familiar and unfamiliar. So we would feel a, a kind of confusing feeling of not really knowing what it was. And I wanted to take it at a very slow tempo because I think that when it's very slow, it also encourages the feeling of spaciousness and, and timelessness. And then when the Schumann starts, it's so urgent. comes out of this almost empty feelings of solitude and suddenly there's this urgency of, of the Schumann. So I guess that's why I thought of doing that pairing there.
the music of Cooperan starts and finishes this recording. I'm wondering what purpose his music may be serving on this recording. I think that Cooperan's music is almost a cipher, especially the, the piece that I start and end with, which is Le Barricade Mysterieuse. There's something about it that is both incredibly simple and incredibly deep at the same time. And Couperin was a very philosophical composer and he, he had strange ideas about music and he would give unusual titles. He saw, he saw music in colors. He thought about different kinds of emotions, characters, philosophies that he would put into his music. And this particular work, Le Barricade Mysterieuse, we, nobody knows why it's called that, what, what it exactly means. But I love the fact that it starts and ends the album because the, going through all of the other music and then returning to that piece, the return it, is really very different. It was great to be able to record the piece twice in different ways, bearing that in mind. And I don't, I don't hear a lot of albums that do that. I mean, sometimes you'll hear like outtakes or, or it, like with a, a, a rock album, you might hear an acoustic version that's at another point. But I liked having the, having the two different versions which are subtly different but they feel they feel very different to me the one in the beginning and the one in the end the past several months have been a time of reflection and reconsidering and that's one of the reasons you created this recording and i'm curious is there any additional meaning beneath the notes that might be there that's a beautiful question. Uh, there's always meaning beneath the notes. Uh, you know, I talked to you about the project I did, The Eye is the First Circle, which was really a very um, autobiographical project having to do with this painting that my father did that depicted my family and, and me as a child, as a baby. And I have been thinking a lot about my past during these past two years and a lot of the music on the album is music that has been important and meaningful to me for many many years like Christ Ariana I learned that in London when I was a student with Maria Curcio which was right when I before I got married, right around the time I got married. And it was a time of real learning, real growth, and and very romantic time for me, because I was, you know, living with my husband, but we were living together then and before we got married, and it was very romantic. Um, and so there's that kind of personal meaning to it the music has for me. And the Cooperan 
Les Barricades Mysterieuses is a piece of music that I first discovered in a, a film that I really love um, called The Tree of Life, uh, which is a Terence Malick film. And in that film, it's all about family. It's a beautiful and very tender and kind of cosmic film. And he uses that this music in it as a, as a kind of theme that goes through it. And so I associated that piece with family too. Um, even though of course that's not, maybe that's not what Couperin had in mind it, but because I've seen it in that context, I think of it that way. I guess the undersong for me is my connection to my family and my husband, my son, my parents, my roots here. A new recording called Undersong with pianist Simona Dinnerstein. With thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of New Classical Tracks, I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.